Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, I did not introduce myself before, so let me do now. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you this morning. We have been in the middle of a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's a famous list of character qualities that Paul, the apostle, uh, gives to us in Galatians chapter 5, and then we're bouncing from that to other parts of the scripture to talk about each of those on a weekly basis. And this morning, our topic is peace. Uh, and so it's not printed for you in the worship folder, but I'm going to read from Galatians 5, just that list of the fruit of the Spirit. And then we're going to go to James chapter 4, because we've been using letter, the letter of James to really flesh these things out a little bit as we talk together uh, week after week. And so follow along with me if you would. It'll be on the screen behind you or, or on your screen at home. You can also grab a Bible or a pew Bible, and the page numbers are printed there for you as we read together. Let me first read from Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then from James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. So I have a question, and it's the question that my wife always posed to our kids uh, because she's a really good parent, and this is when things were starting to kind of teeter out of control. This would be the thing that snapped us all back into attention. She would say to them, are you being a peacemaker or are you being a troublemaker? And that's my question to you this morning. Are you a peacemaker or are you a troublemaker? We're doing this series on the fruit of the Spirit, and this morning, the topic of peace, because we believe that the greatest gift that Christians could give to the world right now, particularly in this strange time that we're going through, is to be a people of character. Salt and light, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, the world doesn't need our opinions. It really doesn't. It doesn't need our opinions. It needs people who are supernaturally outfitted to be loving and joyful and self-sacrificing, no matter what's happening around them, to counteract the cultural momentum towards fear and selfishness and despair, which we, it's all on display. We all see it. And I think this is especially true as we enter into this election season. Aren't you excited? Aren't you looking forward to the next six weeks? We are deeply divided as a nation. I mean, we all know on November 4th, it's going to be 51%, 49% in one way or the other, one direction or the other. I mean, we are divided down the middle. And the result is, uh, and then you throw coronavirus on top of all of that, and then you go on social media or whatever platforms, and you just see it's a time of incredible conflict. There are conflict in marriages, conflict in churches, 
Conflict in neighborhoods. Conflict, conflict everywhere you look. And here's the thing. You can be a peacemaker in kind of that context, that, that, that surrounding reality of conflict, or you can be a troublemaker. And a troublemaker is someone who, in the conflict, just makes it worse. They escalate things. They're ramped up internally, and so all they know to do, all they can really do, all they can produce is just to ramp up everything around them. They're ramped up, and so they ramp other people up, and it just comes, becomes a frenzy. But a peacemaker is different. A peacemaker is a person who is supernaturally able to keep calm and then to create calm. And so in Christianity, we believe we have unique resources to be peacemakers and not troublemakers, and the world needs peacemakers. And biblically, peace is not just a, an inner disposition of a, a sweetness of soul or whatever. Peace is actually a power, a spiritual power that can come into your life and then work like an umpire, like a guard, like a fort. It can, it can work to make you a, the kind of person that can then go into this, this, these places of deep conflict and turmoil and bring peace. But there are two things that we want to learn about what it, is, what it means to be a peacemaker, to become a peacemaker, to live with this kind of peace the Bible talks about. And the first is you have to know that you have to be at peace before you can make peace. You have to be at peace before you can make peace. Secondly, you will not be at peace. Or you will not know what the Bible calls the peace of God until you have peace with God. And those are the two things that I want to talk about this morning, just very quickly. Two kind of bigger level, you know, upper level, bigger picture ideas about peace. The first is that you have to be at peace internally before you can make peace externally. And that's exactly what Christianity makes possible. Let's turn that around and say... External conflict in your life or just in your surroundings often, often is due to internal conflict in your heart. Anytime there's a conflict in a system, so, and by system I mean a family or a company or even a nation, a culture, a church, whatever it might be, typically it's because there is a collective anxiety among all the people. And it takes someone who can be joyful and hopeful and not in a non-anxious presence for the whole system to become healthy. Edwin, Edwin Friedman has written about this. He has a great book on leadership that I mean, it's just really, really great. Um, it's called Failure of Nerve. And he says that the non-anxious person in that anxious system is the leader, a peacemaker, who can change the culture simply by the moral strength within now, there's an example of this in the Gospels. I keep going back to this story. It's one of the most formative Gospel stories for my life. Uh, it's the story of Jesus and his disciples getting caught in the storm on the sea. We read about it this past Friday, actually, in community Bible reading. And if you remember reading, the, the disciples there, as the storm comes, are, they're, they're in a panic. They're freaking out. They're, they're just overwhelmed with fear. Jesus is asleep. And the contrast can be more different as you read it. And when they, uh, they go to wake him up, you know, as he wakes up, he speaks peace, and the sea becomes calm. And part of the lesson is that he was so powerfully at peace inwardly that he was able to, out of that peace, make peace externally. He was a peacemaker. Charles Spurgeon, now if you disagree with me, you disagree with Spurgeon, so good luck, good luck for you, okay? Because I'm just stealing from Charles Spurgeon here, the great preacher in London in the 19th century. He made this application in a sermon on that text. He says this, he said, he that hath peace can make peace. Sleeping his sleep 
We shall awaken his rested energy and treat the winds and the waves as things subject to the power of faith and therefore to be commanded into quiet. Our calm shall work marvels in the little ships whereof others are captains. We too shall say, peace be still. Our confidence shall prove contagious and the timid shall grow brave. Our tender love shall spread itself and the contentious shall, shall cool down to patience. Only the matter must begin with ourselves. And then he says, we cannot create calm till we are calm. And I love that quote. It's what James says here in James chapter 4. James poses a timely question. It really is. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? No one would, no one would contend that it's not a time of great quarreling and fighting that we're going through. But the question is, why? Where does all of that come from? Let me rephrase the question because I think this is really what James is saying. Who started it? Isn't that the age-old question for parents? Or people in charge? Who started it? And as you might imagine, I've had a lot of experience helping people work through interpersonal conflict. And in my experience, we have a per, per, near-perfect record of saying, not me. You're the problem. It was him. It was her. I was minding my own business. Not me. But that's wrong, according to James. Because look what he says. He answers his own question. In the very next verse, he says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights? And this is the surprise. See, this is really a surprise. And I heard some of you go, hmm, we read it a minute ago, because it really does. It's a surprise because he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. Now, this is consistent with the rest of the Bible. Jesus, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount said, you know, whenever you're in conflict, you always look in and check in on yourself before you look around at everybody else. You take the log out of your own eye first, remember this, before you even try to, so you can see clearly enough, before you even try to deal with the speck in others. You act like you're the big sinner. You're the problem. That's the first impulse, according to God's word. And obedience on that point means that you would be far more critical and suspicious of yourself and your side and then charitable and hopeful for those who disagree with you. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if that was unleashed on the world? I mean, what would it be like in the, a presidential debate for Joe Biden to compliment Trump's administration? Just one compliment. What would that do? He, he'd lose his base. But what would it do? What if, what if Trump was even the slightest bit critical of himself? Never going to happen. But what if it did? What would happen? Now, can you imagine that? No, of course not. Because that's not the way we do politics, and it's why we're so divided. And sadly, I would never expect that sort of self-reflection and generosity towards others from our politicians, but I do expect it from you and me. And so what if you did this in marriage? What if you understood that marriage brings you into conflict with yourself and not with your spouse? How would that change things? Can you imagine how much better marriages would be? Can you imagine how much better the world would be? And that's what James is driving at. He says, look, if you, if you want to get to the bottom of what's causing conflict, you look in the mirror. Because there's a war being waged within you. 
And what's happening is that war being waged within you is making its way out. And whoever you're in conflict with, there's a war being waged within them too. And those inward, you know, wars that are being waged are what are creating the conflict. Now, let me just apply this. Just say this to, to all of you. I was reminded this week, very cutely, that we're all, we're all tired after six months. What, what, can I get an amen on that? Aren't we tired? We're tired. And we're not doing our best thinking. And so can I just appeal and say, we need to show extra grace. You need extra grace. I need extra grace. Can we just commit we're going to do that with one another? That's what we need. But, 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 but specifically, okay, specifically let's talk about what James is saying to us here. He says, what causes quarrels and fights? you got to look within, but here's what you're looking within for. He says, we have out-of-control desires. Do you see that word in verse, verse 2? It's the word epithumia. Again, it comes up everywhere in the Bible. We have these out-of-control epithumia desires that are going unmet. There are things that we want too much, and we believe we have to have them in order to be happy and fulfilled. And so work can, become, can be important, and it should be important. It is important, but work success can become too important. It can become too great a desire. You can love your kids and you can uh, love them too much and make them the ultimate thing in your life. And so this isn't just a desire for bad things that Paul, that, excuse me, James is talking about here. This is, a, this is a desire, even an over-desire for good things. This is good things becoming ultimate things that become too important. And, and then what happens when they become too important is if... If you dare get in the way of my ultimate things, then I have no choice but to eliminate you. Now, it might not actually come to murder. Hopefully not. But you get the idea. That's what he says here, right? Look, I mean, look what he says. You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You, it may be that you murder other people in your heart, but there's that kind of antagonism and animosity. Now, a couple of examples might, might be helpful. You might have an over-desire for control and order. But maybe, because God is so good and has such a great sense of humor, you're married to a person who's just hopelessly disorganized. They're late all the time. The house is messy. They can't seem to get it together. But the desire is so inordinate and out of control that you can't shake it off. And so what happens over time in marriage is you begin to despise them because they're keeping you from your goal. If you could just get rid of them, get them out of the house, then you could finally make the house the way you want it to be. And that happens, that sort of thing. Or you might have an over-desire to be right. That may be where you get your sense of righteousness from, right? That I, I know I'm okay if I, I'm right. And if you want to be right too much, you can find yourself in a conversation where different ideas are being bounced around. And instead of just listening and enjoying the people who have different opinions than you, you're going to make it a fight. Because what you need, there's an inordinate desire to be proven right, which means you've got to prove the other person wrong. Being right is too important. And so what you'll need is you'll need for the other person to acknowledge your rightness and their wrongness, and that's what creates the conflict. Now, we could go on and on, but this is what James says. There are these epithemia, these over-desires that are going unmet, and it creates all of this chaos on the inside. Now, the other thing is that if you want something too much like this, and then someone else gets it, but you don't, then you'll grow to hate them. 
You'll be full of jealousy and envy, and this, cause, this is a cause of conflict too. That's what he says, right? You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. So, you, so um, if you love something too much, then when somebody else has it and you don't, you won't be able to celebrate them and celebrate with them. You'll start to wish for their downfall. You'll want them to hurt the way you're hurting. I mean, envy is a, is a gross sin, but here's the thing. I mean, we have to wrestle with this. So much of the conflict that you see is really just jealousy. It's internal conflict making its way onto relationships. And all of it, all of it, James goes on to say at the end of the day, at the end of the day quoting Proverbs 3.34, he goes on and he says, all of it is pride. It all comes from human pride. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble there in verse 6 as he summarizes this passion and pride is uh, this, this, this reality. And pride is the natural self-centeredness that's true of all of us. But that verse is really interesting there in chapter 4, verse 6, because it says that God actively thwarts our pride. So we have these self-centered ways of doing life. We have this, this self-referential way of thinking about all things. But God loves us too much to let us just get away with it. He is constantly thwarting that, that part of our lives. He opposes us in the projects of our pride. Now, what do you think that does? We don't like that very much. And so it means we have these desires to manipulate and control others to our own selfish ends and to arrange for life to be exactly how we want it to. That's what all of us want, but God is constantly undoing our plans. And so our pride is constantly being frustrated. And when it's frustrated, guess what? Out comes anger and jealousy and competitiveness with one another that leads to conflict. That's the teaching here. And it's a time of great conflict in our nation. We all experience this in our relationships. There are sharp disagreements among people in the church even about masks or no masks. I mean, there are churches that are splitting over these things, guys. And Satan is celebrating. And heaven is weeping. And the way we handle it, James says, is to do what, it's kind of the opposite of what you would think you know, at first, you do it by doing two things. He gives us two, two pieces of advice here. You, the way you handle it is to go to work on, your, on you. You go to work on your inside. And you do that by doing a couple things. By first humbling yourself. So you see, you see, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he goes on from there and he says, cleanse your heart, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. <laughs> Excuse me, What? Humble yourself before the Lord. In other words, stop worrying about everybody else because you've got enough to worry about with just you. That's what he's saying. So be hypervigilant about pride. Stop spending so much time peeking in on everybody else. Start to work on yourself and then humble yourself and then retune your life to God's grace. That's what he says. If you want to change, you have to get underneath the behavior to these epi-desires and epi-emotions that are driving you. And you follow those epi-desires and epi-emotions back to the wrong ideas about God that you're living from. That's how you do it. James says you've, you, have, you have all these passions and these desires. And if you're trying to make it happen for yourself because of it and, and the people that get in the way, you hate them for it. And there's jealousy when other people get what you want so badly but you don't have. But the truth is, you know, and so you start to blame people and you say, ah, you know, if I could just get rid of that person, 
or if I could, you know, get out of this relationship or whatever the case might be, then finally I would be happy. And, uh, and James says, no, you, that's, that, that's completely wrongheaded. The truth is this, verse 2. I just love how he just turns it. There's a turn in verse 2 that's just supposed to snap us to attention and catch us by surprise. He says, no, it's none of that. The truth is you do not have because you do not ask. Right? The desires, the envy, the quarreling and fighting, it's all due to unbelief. We think we've got to make it happen for ourselves. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And James says, no, the root problem is that we don't believe that God is enough. We don't believe what John Newton said, that everything is needful that he sends and nothing is needful that he withholds. It takes a tremendous amount of confidence in God's heart to believe that. To believe that you don't have to go through life wrestling things you need away from other people. You can simply ask. Because there's a father in heaven who's fundamentally generous. And it says, verse 6, just to kind of stir our hearts, he, does, he gives more grace. He gives, I, I love that. It means not just grace. Your life is not just full of grace. It's full of mega grace. That's, it's just the word grace with the prefix mega attached to it. He gives mega grace. Grace upon grace. Grace after grace after grace. Guess what this morning was? Grace. Take a breath with me. Guess what that was? Grace. Guess what the next minute of the day is going to bring? Grace. Guess what this afternoon's going to be? There you go. And tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, mega grace. Because God is not stingy. He's not stingy with his gifts. It says also that he yearns jealously for us. Do you see that? It's an amazing thing. And so the cure for our jealousy and our envy of others is to see that God is jealous in love for us. We have to have the right ideas about God. The solution to our epi desires is God's epi yearning for us because that's what that word is there. It's the word for yearn with the epi prefix attached to it. Our epi desires are stilled when we see God's epi yearning for us that we are his great desire, that we are his heart's treasure. That God's jealous love for his people is a theme throughout the Bible. And our divided loyalty, our friendship with the world, as James talks about here, is described as spiritual adultery because God loves us so deeply that he is jealous for our exclusive love and loyalty in return. Isn't that great? And if through continual repentance and faith, you can replace your wrong ideas about God with the truth of his jealous yearning for you and his overflowing generosity to you, then the result is what the Bible calls the peace of God. Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding that guards your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace, this inner, this inner power. It's something inner, something that doesn't have anything to do, oops, excuse me, that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on around you. I, I love pride and prejudice. That's a guilty a confession. Uh, but I, Lizzie is just my favorite, and there's a scene where... Um, where one of the other sisters, uh, I can't remember which one at the moment, is getting married. And she's a little bit silly, but she's bubbly and exuberant. And she, she's sitting at the table with Lizzie. And she says, oh, Lizzie, I wish that you could find a man and be as happy as I am. Which, is, which was the kind of conversation that happened often at the Bennett family table, if you read the book. And Lizzie uh, has a real sense of herself. She says, oh, you know, you could give me 40 such men and I would not be happy. But not because she's a feminist or because she's cynical. She says, until I have your goodness, I'll never have your happiness. See, Lizzie knew, she knew she didn't have the internal, internal frame to ever be happy because 
she didn't have the character that she needed. Her, her, her life, her heart was still a mirror that just all she could do is reflect whatever was going on around her. And so if it was good around her, then maybe there would, you know, she would feel good on the inside. But if it was bad, she would feel bad. And that's all the world knows of peace. But Christianity says there's something different. There's the peace of God that can come in, this, and this power that can come in and create this inner sense of confidence and trust in God that can keep all the anxiety and the worry out. It can keep all of that from coming in and messing up your inside, like a fort, like a castle, which is what that word guard your heart and mind means, that, that, that keeps the threat on the outside and keeps you safe on the inside. There's a spiritual power that can come in and make you a person like that. But here's the second big truth, that you will not know the peace of God until you have peace with God. And we have to define those terms. And so I didn't read it for the sake of time, but the Romans 5 passages that Vicki read to you a little while ago, if you would look back in your worship folder, because that really is going to be where we take uh, a lot of what we're going to say in this next part. But in that Romans 5 passage, we want to start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. So we want to go backwards there. But first, defining what, what we mean by the peace of God. And the phrase is not actually there in Romans 5. But the concept for sure is, and I'm thinking primarily of that last verse where it says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, what is this? It's something more than doctrine. It's more than knowing in theory that God loves you. It's an experiential knowing, what Dane Ortland calls the felt awareness of God's heart. I love that phrase. The felt awareness of God's heart, this deep assurance of his love. And it's a knowing that goes beyond knowing. You can read the Bible and, and, and read about God's love and you can believe in it, but this is something different. This is the Spirit coming, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit coming and directly and supernaturally bringing the truth of God's love home to your heart so that it becomes real and it fills up the empty spaces inside of you until you begin to overflow with love and joy and peace. I've used the illustration before, uh, but I'm reminded I read this book Recently, they said leaders are, are repeaters, and so it, it gives me permission to just say the same things over and over again because maybe one day we'll start to believe them, right? But I've used the illustration of Thomas Goodwin talked about uh, seeing a father and a son walking along the road one day and just hand in hand uh, enjoying a walk through the park. And, uh, but there was a moment where in the process of walking along, the father bent down and scooped the son up into his arms and, and brought him close to his chest and hugged him uh, and kissed his cheek and whispered in his ear and then he set him back down uh, on the sidewalk and they continued on their walk. And he just, and he asked the question, he said, was the little boy any more loved in his father's arms than when he was walking beside him? And the answer is, of course, what? No. But he was experiencing his sonship differently. So objectively, no difference. Subjectively, big difference. Because when the father scooped him up and kissed him and whispered in his ear, he was experiencing the father's love in a more profound way. And this is the peace of God that guards your heart, that keeps all the worries and the fears out. The peace of Christ that rules your heart like a referee in a boxing match. This deep confidence and assurance. It's the opposite of shame there. You see that in verse 5? No shame. So it's the opposite of what we mean by shame. This is this deep sense of being fully known by God and fully loved that produces endurance and character and hope that can make you rejoice even in suffering. And so these verses in Romans 5 describe an indestructible person. 
with an inner life that is void of all the problems that James talks about, instead of out-of-control desires and lusts that spill over into conflict, there's deep peace. The way Isaiah said it, do you remember? He said, quietness and trust that create an inner strength and repose that can de-escalate tension and conflict happening externally. So that, as Spurgeon said, our calm shall work marvel in the little ships whereof others are captains. Our confidence shall prove contagious and the timid shall grow brave. Our tender love shall spread itself and the contentious shall cool down with patience. But in order to live with the peace of God, you have to have peace with God. Paul says that all of this is possible only when you know that you've been justified by faith and have peace with God and that you're standing in the everyday grace that God gives there in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 of Romans. Then you can laugh at suffering and let it do its work in your life and be full of hope. So you don't get peace through therapy. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go to therapy. I think that's a great idea, but most of the time, ultimately, ultimately peace doesn't come through therapy. You get peace through theology. Or maybe the both combined, however you want to say that. But there's a hint. And I say that, it's an important point to make because there's a hint of this in Mark's version of Jesus' calming the sea. We read it just this past Friday. The disciples who are just as stormy internally as what's happening around them, by the way, uh, they wake Jesus up, but they, but they ask a question that's unique to Mark. They say, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? And it's a statement of unbelief. And Jesus took some offense to it because he kind of rebuked them. He said, Here's his, his response was, why are you so afraid? Uh, because we're about to drown. Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And the lesson of the story is that every time you go through a storm, you'll be shaken. Unless you know that your relationship with God is rock solid. We have peace with God, Paul writes, verse 1. Which means we were at one time at war with him. Enemies with irreconcilable differences, indeed alienated from one another. In Ephesians, Paul describes sinful humanity as being without God and therefore without hope. The Shorter Catechism describes the condition of sin in the same way, no communion with God under his wrath and curse and so miserable in this life. And as if that's not bad enough, then after this life comes death and hell. And it's, this is an objective reality, but it's also something that you feel it sits there just below the surface of our lives. You can't live with real joy and peace until there's peace with God. And this is what Paul goes on to describe here in Romans chapter 5 as he talks about God showing his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a, an objective moral record that stands against us. Just as there's a physical accounting uh, in the universe, if you jump off a balcony five stories high, you will smack the pavement every time. It's just the way things work. Gravity is real. Whether it doesn't, you can say, I don't believe in gravity and jump. Guess what? It doesn't matter whether you believe it's real or not. And in the same way, there's a moral accounting. And if you rebel against God and go your own way, eventually you will smack into the pavement. It doesn't matter whether you believe that there's right or wrong or that there's a God who accounts for these things. Eventually it'll happen. And even God has to acknowledge and deal with this moral accounting, which brings us to the heart of the gospel. While we were enemies, Paul says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus Christ. God's wrath 
against our sin was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. The beloved son took the place of God's enemies and bore their wrath so that when you put all of your confidence and trust in him, you get God back. It's okay between you and him again. That's the gospel. And again, it's all grace. Which means Jesus did everything and you did nothing. And here's where the transformation happens. When you see Jesus dying for his enemies, for you, and you know that it's all grace, and he wins you to the reality of his heart, well, then you can't be proud. Pride's the problem. Remember pride. But a a Christian is a person who gets access. A a Christian is a person who says, I get all of this, and I did nothing for it. I, I was an enemy. God didn't, Jesus didn't die for me because I was a righteous person. Jesus didn't die for me because I was on the right side of, of the political argument of the day. I was an enemy. I was wrong. I was a rebel. I was guilty of cosmic treason. And everything good that has come in my life has nothing to do with anything I was, but everything is due to what he has done for me. And so there's no room for pride. I mean, there, there's no pride left at the end of that when it starts to sink into your heart. And so a Christian is a person who gets access to grace and then never leaves. They move in and they unpack and they never leave. They stand in grace. They don't go back to works. They make their home in God's heart. A person living day after day in grace, well, they are humble enough and confident enough to trust God for everything. They live with a supernatural ability to content their hearts in his love. Now that, and that's the person. That person doesn't have to fight or quarrel. They're not worried about getting their way or proving their right. They don't have to do any of that. All of that need inside has been filled up by something else, by peace. And the word peace literally means to put together. So when God's love for you because of Jesus begins, becomes real to you, it begins to put you back together internally, then guess what? As you start to get put back together internally, you become a person who God is able to use to put other things back together as well. And that's what it means to be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. Listen, the world needs peacemakers. Amen? Especially right now. The world needs peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, we just offer our lives to you. And we say, uh, we are so restless inside most of the time that we are not able to bring peace, to calm the storms of life. We, our confidence does not prove contagious. Our tender love does not spread itself. But the matter must begin with us, as Charles Spurgeon said. And so we ask that you give us the courage to turn our gaze inward in this moment of reflection now at the end of our service. Give us the courage to be honest about uh, looking in and then being honest about what we find there. To not run out of this service and be forgetful of what you might be stirring in us, but to take this quiet moment. What causes quarrels and fights? Is it not the passions at war and the, and the epi desires? Father, we pray that whatever we discover, whatever ugliness inside, that you just come right alongside of that discovery with the reminder that there is no reason 
for shame because you are God who loves sinners. You're a friend of sinners. You're the one who died for his enemies, for rebels. And so we have no need um, to just dwell but we can come to you, we can turn to you, and we can, we can, even, we can even sing praises to you uh, because you are so good and so faithful to us. And so as we sing now, begin to mend our hearts, put us back together, and then send us on a mission of putting the world back together until you come again to make all things new, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Christian life is the constant process of faith and repentance of turning away from the ways that we lose sight of what we just sang, where we lose sight of God's heart for us, where we start to live as if what he said is true of himself is not true, and then constantly bringing ourselves back into alignment with what we know to be the truth, right? And then that's when peace comes. Uh, and so now what happens is, is God has, has done a work in us. That's what, this, that's what this service is about, for us to be gathered into his presence so that he could remind us again of his love and continue the process of putting us back together and then now send us to go and to engage in that great work of putting the world back together until he comes again to make all things new. And so be sent now with these words, the promise that as you go, you do not leave God behind in this place, but he has gone before you. And every step of the way, he will be with you. Uh, to continue to minister to your heart, to continue to give you his peace and joy and love because he is faithful and true. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.